Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. I do the intros. This is Meredith. Alex is to my right. Ivy is causing mischief somewhere in this room. So, how's it going? Good. Yeah. I wanted to um, share with you guys another laundry story. Oh, come on. Meredith. Okay, so not only does Meredith not do her laundry... Okay, I've done my laundry the past two times. Okay, yeah. But she also doesn't do much of the vacuuming, which was an agreement we made when we got the cat. I said, the cat is going to shed, and we're going to have to clean a lot more. So, like, you're, like, you have to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a little kid. So, anyways, I d- was doing the vacuuming the other day up in the bedroom, and I, th- I don't know why, but Meredith d- can't, she like puts some of her dirty clothes in the in the mm-hmm. hamper, but some of the dirty clothes don't make it into the hamper. And then also clean clothes. Yeah, there's piles. On there's the, like the, the clean clothes also go on the floor. Okay, do you want me to explain the yes. piles? Okay. Well, there's like the basket that has like definitely dirty, and then there's like the pile, the gym clothes pile, which is like these are still kind of sweaty. Therefore, I don't want to put them in the dirty clothes. And then there's why not. I don't know. Like, so they, they dry. I don't know. I sometimes think like piling sweaty clothes on top of, and then like, they just get like, I don't know. Just what I do. Okay. I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for that. Um, and then there's, huh? Figured. Yeah. It's just the way I do it. And then there's the, the still clean, like maybe a sweatshirt or something. Cause like my closet's in the other room. And so sometimes I just, if I know I'm going to wear it in the morning, I just put it in the clean pile. Yeah. Which is also where jeans go. And then there's the like kind of dirty, but might still like might wear again pile. So it's like the undecided. This is the person who hates doing laundry. Yeah. This is their technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the sweater goes into that pile if it's like going on day three of being worn or something okay. like that. That's the piles. All right. So what I do when I vacuum is I like put my hamper on the bed and then I have to collect all of Meredith's piles and put them in a, her hamper to get them off the floor and onto the bed it's the easiest way to do it and I just don't give a shit what the piles are so I'm vacuuming and then I put her hamper back on the floor and I say when I come downstairs I say hey just a heads up I put all of your clothes that were around your hamper in your hamper mm-hmm. so if there's anything that doesn't need to go in the laundry you better pull it out because I'm doing your laundry tomorrow which is like f- normally fine because I was like well I, you know everything there can be washed so there's nothing to worry about so, so then I, you lied to me. I did my laundry the next day. Um, actually I think it was like two days later. And so I just like, whatever, everything can get washed. I put all of the clothes in the wash. I actually like put them in the dryer in a timely, and I actually think that they were back oh, in I the basket. I reminded you to put them in the dryer. Well, it doesn't matter. I did it. Yeah. And that's the important part. So I think they were actually, the clothes were out of the dryer, back in the basket, back in the room to begin, like begin the multi-day folding process. <laughs> And that all happened in like one day, which yeah. is pretty incredible. Significant. Yeah. But then I'm like, I set it on the, the bed and I see something like right at the top. And I'm like, well, what is that? And I pull it out and it's like my favorite Merino wool, like hat, toque. And uh, this is the second time I have actually shrunk one of those. The first time was like maybe two years ago. And like, it still goes on your head, but it's super tight now. Um, so I was like super, I was super bummed out and kind of blamed Alex. She was like, Hey, 
how did how did my hat end up in the hamper and i had told her twice like look check your hamper because i put a lot of stuff in there yeah i just i don't even know how the hat got upstairs because it usually stays like it could have been ivy because she was complaining about her head being cold the other day right yeah and she does like wearing hats here and there yeah so in my compulsion i have a compulsion that's like when something of mine gets damaged or breaks i have like i have to go replace it immediately like as like had the the store there's like one place in calgary that has this brand had they been open that night i would have gone yeah for sure and then she bought a new hat and then went to the gym and one of the dog gyms stole it and ripped a hole in it so now she has to buy another hat i haven't bought another it's just like a small hole i can't decide if i'm like okay with it or not it adds character i mean i guess but they're like 80 dollar hats exactly which is why you should just keep the one that has character yeah it's fine for now i don't like i put it on and i can't see it so i just i'll pretend like it's not there until it really starts to bug me yeah (laughs) anyway so thanks for telling that story yeah yeah we have our roles yeah i (laughs) i feel like you have all the easy roles i don't they're not which is like just sit back and relax Okay, what do you think that... Let's go through... What do you think our roles are? Okay, well, I keep track of all the food. I uh-huh. do all the, like, the grocery shopping. Like, you come to keep me company. Yeah. But really, you're just a nuisance. It's like, Meredith, like, come this way. <laughs> no, we can't get that, Meredith. <laughs> okay, you're not that bad. Okay. <laughs> Why are you laughing so hard at this part of the story? Um so there there is the odd time that meredith goes out for groceries and it's like i know that other couples have these roles because i've talked to my clients about them mm-hmm. and like some of my clients be like oh I, you know i didn't eat this or i didn't have what i needed because i sent my husband or my wife grocery shopping and i usually go but i didn't give him the exact list or whatever or her mm-hmm. anyway meredith is that person that cannot be trusted like first of all she doesn't make any lists no it's in my head so it's like i'll go to the grocery store and be like do you need anything I come back and then a day later she's like, hey, um, so I'm out of eggs. <laughs> I'm out of jam. I'm like, all right, okay. So the other day, just to like paint you the full picture of what I'm dealing with and so that I can like convince you guys of my position here. Meredith had to go out and get tampons one day. She went explicitly for like, did you just get one item that day? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> she comes back she's in the bathroom and she's like damn it yeah i bought i had bought <laughs> replacement razor blades which like which not only are like not tampons but they're like 40 dollars <laughs> like 25 i don't even know how much they cost they're way too expensive in my opinion yeah i don't i actually i don't know how i like got all the way through checkout and without being like well that's weird like 45 dollars seems like a lot yeah that was not my best moment but makes for a good story yeah on the plus side like it's always nice to have more razor blades than you need (laughs) you'll use them eventually yeah for sure but i do okay it just sometimes takes me a little bit longer Mm -hmm. i have my roles i remember once you were like hey alex um you hadn't gone with me for a while because of covid Mm -hmm. and it was like your first time back in the grocery store and you were like so just like uh, disoriented bamboo and at one point you were like hey alex um where do i find the lemon juice 
I was like, I don't know, in the juice aisle. Yeah. I've never been great in grocery stores. Like no. it took me, I went the other day without you and it took me solid like 10 minutes to find the rice cakes. But those are in a different place in every yeah, store. Yeah, those are so. tricky. Especially the healthy ones. But anyways, you're good at a lot of other things. So I have lots of talent. Thank you. you. Yeah. Like computers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely not. That's not my strong suit. No. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, is like Meredith bashing hour over? Yeah. Can we get on with it? I don't know. People seem to like the, the old laundry story that we told yeah. a couple episodes ago. So I wanted to elaborate on the it. La- I told you the laundry was going to be relatable. Yeah. You didn't believe me. You think I'm the weird one. You're the weird one. Yeah. Um so anyways we wanted to talk today um you know i always i am someone who's very convinced by information that's out there and we've talked about this on the show before um so there's always this disconnect for me like if if we have so much information um you know why why do people still struggle to change their behavior and so um i think there are a lot of reasons for that and we're going to kind of touch on one of those reasons today. And it's, um, this is all based on a Ted talk that we saw, um, a little bit ago by a guy named, uh, Doug, no, Lyle, no, oh, Doug, Lyle, Doug Lyle, Doug Lyle. Yeah. yeah. Not Lyle McDonald. Yeah. Doug Lyle. Lyle who's McDonald a, is another expert in the field of nutrition. Yeah. Super good follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but Doug Lyle is a behavioral psychologist and he did this, um, this talk. And so we're going to kind of like briefly, run through it and then um sort of break out our own discussion but at the beginning um he's talking about this um this species of bird and in um in the bird's natural habitat it's like there it exhibits this super strange behavior of catches it catches insects and he the male birds impale the insects on thorns so they're like where they nest or where they live there's all these like bushes with thorns with like bugs stuck on them which is kind of a weird thing to see in the wild like it's a little bit unusual and then he asked the audience like you know why do you think the male bird does this and someone kind of jokes and he's like you know sex and he's like that's exactly it it is and it's um you know it's so that then the female bird comes and flies through the area and it finds the bush with the most uh bugs stuck on thorns and you know then it mates with that male bird and we see you know the same behavior exhibited in humans when you know men buy these big trucks and they jack them up and they put big tires on them and they're like you know come mate with me i'm the alpha male but they don't realize that women don't actually like that very much (laughs) Uh, he makes a joke about like you know it explains why there are tons of bmws and trees in silicon valley it's a good joke um So anyways, he kind of like it goes on to say the bird um, and all like all animals for that matter. But he's talking specifically about this bird because he's going to do an experiment on it. Um, You know, we're made up of animals are made up of genes like every physical attribute um, and non-physical attribute can be contributed to the genetic code passed down generation to generation. Those genes are what drive the like instincts and like neural responses in animals in the bird um and then those generate thoughts which then go to feelings and then that is what modifies behavior and for the most part in nature animals behavior kind of circles back to propagating the genes so everything that darwinism yeah everything the animal does or doesn't do is to uh ensure that it's um 
genes get passed down to a future generation. It just ensures that they get to mate more or less to yeah. oversimplify it. And so <clears throat> the experiment, he takes one of these birds with the bugs and, um, He's like, so what, you know, what we did here is we, we took the bird out of its natural environment and we took control of the environment so we can modify it and puts it in a cage. And in the cage, there are two buttons. There's two phases of the experiment. The first phase, there's one button that will open a door and the bird can fly free into its environment. And then the second button, it opens a door and there's a female bird already sitting there, like ready to go. And so over like repetition, which bird or which button does the male bird push? blue obviously the button that opens the door to the female because um you know the the bird is essentially um you know has three uh three things that motivate it it's the um you know pleasure food sex it's pain avoidance and energy conservation so it's going for the most pleasure with the least amount of energy. Sure, like if it goes into its natural environment, like it can probably find a female bird and probably mate with it, but it's more work and it knows that. Um, whether it's a conscious thought or not, it just knows that the bird, the door with the female behind it is less work, which is good. Um, the second phase of the experiment, the, uh, the open environment door is replaced with the female bird. So now we have one button that opens the door to a female bird and then one button that triggers a release of cocaine directly into the bird's brain. And so it's this huge dopamine release. Um, and the bird experiences what Doug refers to as euphoria, which is essentially like, that's what, you know, high intensity do. pleasure, like yeah. pleasure to the maximum degree. Exactly. More than food and sex. Mm -hmm. And so the bird, what, what button do you think the bird pushes? The cocaine button. The cocaine button. And so it pushes it over and over and over again. And even when the bird is experiencing hunger, it's experiencing thirst, it's like it should be trying to mate with the female bird to propagate the species. It doesn't. It continues to push the cocaine button. And in without intervention in 10 to 12 days, the bird has killed itself. And it throughout all of that, all that button pushing, the bird thinks, feels that it's doing what is right. Yeah. Without knowing that he is quickly killing himself. Yeah. And that goes back to the, like the, uh, the behaviors that birds and animals and really humans exhi exhibit. And that's, um, and it all goes to propagating the genes, right? So pleasure being food and sex, um, pain avoidance. So you're going to avoid, animals are going to avoid scenarios that cause them pain or put them in danger. So that's where our like, you know, the prey response comes from, um, and energy conservation, like not that animals are inherently lazy, but it doesn't behoove a species to go burn off all its energy store energy stores, uh, when it doesn't know when its next meal is coming. So when animals make decisions in the wild, um, you know, it's, you're, they're considering all of those factors. Like, what's the least likely to cause me pain, what's the easiest and what's going to bring the most pleasure. So essentially like no pain, the most pleasure for the least amount of work. And that's what motivates animals. And that's what keeps them alive in a natural environment. And the same thing goes for humans, right? Well, a human is an animal and that's important to remember throughout all of this. We are, we are. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. Okay. I was trying to like, you know, I'm sorry. That was too much. <laughs> 
Okay. Meredith's eyes were just about like twice as wide as they normally are. I don't even know why that was. I guess I'm just jazzed about this topic. Like, you know, this isn't video, right? I know, but like it made you laugh. It did. All right. Um, so yeah, humans are animals. So when we say animal, like this is all true for human beings. The you're difference an animal. is we don't live in the wild. I'm an animal. <laughs> we don't live in the wild. Some people do. Some, but the majority of the people who we're talking to right now. So don't. like when, so like we're par- we're going to parlay this over to yes. humans. So what, um, what environment do we live in and how is it different than like what our humans in the wild environment would so be? So we, if you're going to parlay this over in our ancestral environment, you could say that that was the bird's natural environment of living in the wild with its bush and insects and mating based on how many insects were in its bush. Mm-hmm. So it has to expend energy to get the insects, to find food, to um, attract a mate and avoiding like pain is more than just sitting on the couch. It has to, you know, get away from predators and stuff. So that's similar to our ancestral environment where we were living and we had to catch our own food. We had to, you know, mate based on, I don't know, like. Alex, I just realized something. What? We would not have survived in the wild. No, and we'll talk about that. But like. Wait, are we going to talk about because we don't like. There's a couple of different reasons. To eat or because we're gay? <laughs> Two different reasons. <laughs> okay, but the like an animal, a human being in its wild environment is similar to the bird. It's like it will it will survive, it will find sex, it will find food, it will stay healthy. It when it finds food, when a human being finds food, it's a good idea to eat that food in the ancestral environment because food isn't as widely available. So we're talking about food like it does depend sort of geographically on yeah. what set of ancestors, but we're talking more like most specifically if you haven't clued into it, like kind of the hunter-gatherer phase of our existence. Yeah. Okay, carry on. So right now what what humans are living in is essentially the box that the bird was in our society is the box Mm -hmm. it's like i mean we're not necessarily talking about how easy it is to get sex in our environment but it's very easy to get food and not just regular food like that we would have in our ancestral environment but we're getting food that's highly processed extremely high in fat extremely high in sugar extremely high in carbs just very calorically dense Mm -hmm. and all that to say it's very very highly it's highly palatable which yeah. means it's almost like it triggers this response in our brain that is similar to drugs yeah, we see that right like they've done tons of studies on mice and rats and even humans that you know kind of measure this dopamine response with food and it depending on the food and the organism it is on par to the dopamine response that occurs with like an ingestion of cocaine like yeah. it's up there and if you're ever interested in learning more about that specifically the um the hungry brain is a really good book and it talks about a ton of different experiments mm-hmm. that kind of show like humans can't control themselves yeah. basically and you know any animal rats stuff like that it kind of yeah it's explains like as, all that. as soon as you strip away the nutritional value of food you concentrate it it becomes oily fatty salty and delicious sweet and delicious and you combine those things and you have in your hands now a donut um that's not a food that would exist in nature and so the response to the response you're going to have as an animal is going to be a supernatural response. Yeah. And you're just like the bird with the cocaine button as a human, you're just going to keep pressing that button, which in our society is driving through a fast food restaurant, um, 
grabbing chips instead of carrots. I mean, there's a million examples out there. Well, it's like you, you can also look at like behavior in general. There's generally a little bit more friction to eating healthy because you have to, um, you have to either have food prepped and ready to go, or you have to go to a grocery store, get the raw ingredients, go home, cook the raw mm-hmm. ingredients, um, versus, you know, right next to the grocery store, it might be a McDonald's. Yeah. And so that's like, you know, you are not only fighting against biological urges, you are, um, you know, the, the good behavior is, has a little more friction to it than the, the bad behavior. Yeah. And what's like important from the, the bird study is it thought that it was like being biologically very smart pushing that button because it's doing all of the things that would serve it well um, in a natural environment. It says, you know, I'm avoiding pain, I'm seeking pleasure, um, I'm conserving energy, which are things that if it does, it it lives a long and happy life and it has tons of babies. And so that same behavior loop exists in humans um, where like you just, you you think you're doing something that's good and your brain is going to tell you that it's going to tell you all kinds of reasons why what you're doing is okay and good. When in reality, like it's having detrimental health effects. And it's the same thing for when you're trying to decide whether you should sit on your couch or go and work out. Like the people who survived in the natural ancestral environment were the ones who were able to conserve energy in order to expend it in other ways or to conserve energy because food wasn't as widely available. Mm -hmm. But now we're in a society where there is energy every, like we have food everywhere. Um, We're not expending energy when necessary because honestly, it's not necessary to get through in life for most people. To exercise, you mean? Or to just be active? To expend energy. Mm -hmm. You can get through life with expending very little energy. Yeah, if you don't have an active job... If you don't exercise willingly. Like you can like think about drive throughs There's drive through everything now. You mm-hmm. can drive through at the bank. You don't even have to go to the bank. Think about like apps. Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't even have to get in your car to go and get food. Food will be delivered to you. Yeah. Like somebody could be, you could have, I bet you, you could get through the day with a sedentary job with fewer than 500 steps if you needed to. Oh, easily. Like just walking around your house. For and sure. some people don't even do that. They don't mm-hmm. get up from their chair. Mm-hmm so in our environment like that's an issue like yeah it's it's in our brains because our brains haven't ad- adapted to our environment yet mm-hmm. in our brains it's seen as it feels good to sit on the couch and conserve energy but in our environment it's not good it doesn't actually help us yeah it, it does the opposite because we're not having to go get our food um or expend any energy otherwise yeah. and so like what Doug gets into next is what he calls the pleasure trap. And he's got a, a book that's all about this and we're going to oversimplify the concept, but essentially it talks about, you know, the way that food exists naturally. Um, you know, we're supposed to have a medium enjoyment of our food and that's like, you know, eating relatively bland, unprocessed, plant-based kind of that type of eating. Um, and that's based on like neurological responses mm-hmm. and like our taste buds and all that stuff that's happening yeah, they're like eat. a normal, like our, normally our taste buds are sensitive to like relatively unprocessed foods. Um, you know, fruits, vegetables, things that come straight from the ground, animals that come, you know, I mean, like you'd cook the animal, I guess. So it always tastes better cooked. Yeah. Um, so he's got this like this sort of five phase, these five phases that he describes this phenomenon is. And the first phase is, yeah, we're just eating a normal like plant-based, whole foods-based diet. <clears throat> Nothing super special about it nothing super highly palatable about it, just normal food. In the second phase, we introduce ultra processed, 
uh, calorie dense, salty, sweet, kind of the, the modern American diet, which is what we know a lot of people eat, right? Fast food, um, you know, ice cream, junk food, chips, things that taste super good. And what that does is um, the receptors in our, our brain just go crazy, right? Super sensitive, just it, it tastes so good. And so now we're at this like very high level of enjoyment of our food because it's it's so delicious and it's so different from food that exists naturally. Yeah. But our, I'll 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 tell you a little story to paint the picture. <laughs> I like I don't eat very much like unhealthy food. I don't eat like especially now since we've cut out M&Ms. But like I don't eat very much dairy or gluten which kind of cuts out desserts. But um and it, Meredith's similar and so is my mom and my dad. So when we go out for dinner, we'll order <laughs> We'll always order a dessert or two desserts. Yeah. And usually it's like whatever's the most delicious looking. So oftentimes it's like (laughs) they have like a molten chocolate cake with ice cream or I don't know. There's always something with like caramel Mm -hmm. usually contains ice cream and cake in some form. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of banana bread pudding, which is a very underrated dessert. Uh, it's like it's not my favorite but i know why you like it i like creme brulee for the record so we always order a couple desserts and the last time we were out for dinner it had been a while since we had been out for dinner because of covid the dessert came and it was like two medium-sized desserts for a decent restaurant i'm pretty sure we finished that dessert those two desserts four people in under 60 seconds i think we scared (laughs) the wait staff we like finished it all kind of looked up (laughs) what happened but it was like it was so good it was like food i had never you know like i just this when you describe this um phenomenon i'm like wow i've had that one time i had a timbit which i've had timbits in my life before but again like i don't eat them very often it was so it was a birthday cake flavored timbit that's the best one which is like it's like a donut and a cake combined how much better can it get and I like was laughing. It was like, like was I didn't so even know delicious. this flavor existed. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like the cake thing, the COVID, it had been maybe, it was like June or July. Yeah. So it had been some months and like we, like I, eating. and we don't eat ice cream very often. So like no. ice cream with like sauce on it. Holy and- moly. <laughs> Yeah. So anyways, that's the response you're supposed to have when you eat. And then you go back palatable. to eating normal food and like you kind of retain sensitivity for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But if you, a lot of people don't, right? They, they just constantly like once a day have to have something like that or maybe every meal is like that. And so um, your body doesn't like to respond to things in like a, a very, um, like it doesn't like to have this super elevated, super high response to any particular stimulus. And so what happens is you start to, adapt neurologically and so this is what we've talked about in the past with our with dietary habituation and habituation can be used for any stimulus so like you were telling me the other day the story about your stockings yeah so i i went to this private school i was taking uh, psychology ap and we we had to wear these high high socks what kind of so it was like high socks with a skirt yeah with a kilt was it a plaid it was that's hot (laughs) um so we had to wear high sock, like knee highs, mm. I guess they were called. And any type of knee high sock, they kind of are tight at the top to make sure they stay up, like even a ski sock and mm-hmm. stuff. And sometimes when you put them on, you'll notice, our, my psychology teacher was teaching us about at a, like neurological habituation. habituation. And she said like, for example, and I still remember this, even though it was so many years ago, grade 12, that she, 
she said like, for example, your socks, when you put them on this morning, you probably noticed them being very tight on your leg or feeling them on your leg or feeling the elastic. So itchy. Yeah. She goes, but right now sitting here, like you've been wearing them for five hours now and you don't, you haven't noticed them once. And now, now you're maybe noticing them again, but only when you're, but it's because you've adapted. Yeah. Sensory. And it's the same thing when you walk into someone's house and you smell something, but then you adapt to it. Like if they've got food cooking or like a candle and you're like, you walk in and you're like, oh, that smells nice. Or like if you had that, that friend when you were a kid and you walked into their house and it smelled like weird. Yes. Everyone had a friend that had like a weird smell. I like distinctly remember the house. It's like, what is that smell? And it wasn't like bad. I just couldn't play. It It didn't smell like like something. But not like anyway but after you spend you know you're playing nintendo mm-hmm. for two hours you don't notice the smell anymore yeah it's the same so yeah. the essentially the, the yeah how you remember that house everyone i bet you everyone listening is like i had that friend i know that friend her name was Haley. um that was made up her name wasn't actually Haley. yeah um so anyways yeah the exact same thing happens with with our diet and so essentially and i'm gonna go to like i'm going on a tangent here this is why the ketogenic diet works or like the carnivore diet. So why people, when they switch, they're like, Oh my God, I lost 30 pounds. It's because like you literally, you get tired of eating the same things. And when you're on a limited diet and you don't, you, you're like, I can't eat that. I'm on the carnivore diet. You just don't eat. And so now like a byproduct of dietary habituation is a, is, is a, a calorie deficit. Um, in this case, a byproduct of dietary habituation is that you're going to continue to seek out highly palatable foods because now your baseline for flavor and food enjoyment has returned to the same level that it was when someone was eating healthy food. So to, to like for visual people, there's like a straight line that's healthy food. Then it goes up for our like highly palatable food. And now still eating highly palatable food, it comes back down to a baseline level. And then your body's doing that on purpose. So this is where a lot of people kind of hang out. And then maybe, you know, maybe you, you sign up for a nutrition program or you hear a, a talk or, you know, go see your doctor and they say, look, you got to lose some weight. Um, you feel compelled to change your eating habits. And so what happens next is you switch from a highly palatable diet to maybe you're doing meal prep. or you're, Everybody knows what they, they know mm-hmm. what they should be eating to be healthy. And so it's like, all right, I'm going to like... I'm going to do this. I want to get healthy. Um, I'm going to like, I'm going to switch my eating habits back. And so I switch back and now this baseline of, of eating what's enjoyable, there's this big dip. And so there's a very low level of food enjoyment, like low, low, so low that your body's screaming at you to go eat that highly palatable stuff. Cause it's again. not getting any stimulation, like right? Nothing, no pleasure. Yeah. Um, and so this is where a lot of people fail. And so they, um, you know, you do this for a week, two weeks. It, it takes longer than that for most folks, like multiple weeks, two months um, to return like palate sensitivity. And so what happens then is people diet for a couple of weeks and then they go back to their old ways because it's it's too hard, too hard in air quotes. But really, it's just your like it's your own biological system that has pivoted 180 degrees. Um, so instead of reinforcing good behavior, it's now reinforcing bad behavior because doing the wrong thing feels like the right thing according to your brain and doing the right thing feels depressing and feels wrong because it's like i'm not enjoying this at all um you know i'll just go back to eating what i should and so this is kind of where having some like tools in place or systems or like working with an expert can be really helpful um 
so they like Doug talks about specifically like how to reset sensitivity and they use some weird stuff like a really easy one um, that sometimes we recommend is sticking to drinking only water so even if you're doing like BCAAs or flavoring in your water just cut that stuff completely out drink only water and that helps that alone will kind of help restore some sensitivity and then he goes a little bit further and is talking about doing like um, you know a, a an apple or carrot juice cleanse and only doing juice for you know two to three days and the reason for that is is he explains is um a surefire way to return sensitivity to a system is to deprive that system for a period of time it has absolutely nothing to do with detox no it has everything to do with the brain it's essentially though you do that for you know two to three days and then you go eat a normal meal that consists of mostly plants you know lean protein unprocessed carbohydrates and it's going to taste way better than it would have uh, prior to doing that like juice cleanse and I'm using the word cleanse because that's what he used I don't like that word um, and that certainly works and then he goes on to explain like you know there are support groups and books and certainly having education around this topic is important um, but we've been doing this long enough that we've kind of seen these patterns like we get you know no, new folks they do awesome for a couple of weeks and then they really start to struggle sometimes they you know, they go completely AWOL off the map for a couple of days. Sometimes, you know, you just start seeing some variability in logging. Um, you know, and that's where, that's kind of where we come in, right? And having someone that you can talk to and can reassure you like, yeah, this is totally normal. You just got to hang in there kind of thing. Um, I don't know. And then you usually see people like once they get past that initial, like, you know, the month, six week, eight week mark where they've really made a habit out of eating mostly whole foods it becomes so much easier. Yeah. And on top of that, the motivation from feeling better and looking better usually mm-hmm. um, also is is additive to help them kind of push forward. Yeah. Which makes sense, right? Like you start, usually anytime someone starts a diet or fitness program or hires a coach, there's all this upfront motivation and that's awesome. That's going to keep you rolling for a couple of weeks. Like sometimes I get clients and they're like, you know, however many pounds overweight or mm-hmm. they feel bad or whatever. And then I give them their macros and we give them the whole plan that explains like healthy food and kind of what you should look for at the, at the grocery store, blah, 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 how to start off. And then I look at their logs after a week. I'm like, man, this person is like, they have a really clean diet. Like this is, I wonder what, how are they 30? And then it, it is, it's a couple of weeks yeah. later or you talk to them like, Hey, is this like reflective of the way your diet was before we started? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, nope. Like yeah. I used to eat fast food all the time. I would never meal prep. My like my wife and I would eat ice cream every night, like things like that. Yeah. It's just getting like they know what they need to do. It's getting past that point where like your motivation starts to wane and your brain signals are they become very strong. Yeah, and it's like it instincts, makes it makes sense because like your the, the initial motivation wears off and now you're eating a a diet that's like for the most part kind of plain. It's it's mo- like it's likely that you haven't seen a ton of physical results because you know, like there's not much that's going to happen in two to three weeks. There's not much that's going to happen in a month or two months for that matter for a lot of people. And so, you know, you're, you're busting your ass eating a super plain diet that you hate. Your, your brain is trying to, to tell you like trying all kinds of ways to get you to go back and eat, you know, fast food and a McFlurry on top of the fact that your physical results are quite limited. So you're getting all this feedback that says, just go back, just go back, just go back to the way you're doing things. Like you'll be fine. You'll be happy. You and you'll enjoy your food. Like, so what if you're a little bit overweight, that's fine. Um, when, you know, in reality it's, it's the continued 
sort of pursuit. And it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect and you can never eat um, highly palatable foods. Like whenever you're trying to change behavior and habits, like there are going to be hiccups. There are going to be, there's going to be days that are bad. Um, you know, there's going to be days that are great. And it's like when you do have one of those off days, you kind of just have to dust yourself off and carry on because, you know, habits and behavior takes a long, long, long time to change, especially when you are up against something as like biologically significant as food. Yeah. So back to how we wouldn't have survived in the ancestral <laughs> times, like the people who are, who would have survived best in those old times. I keep using weird words to talk in about the olden those. days, <laughs> the old, but actually it is I, like the very olden days, not like powdered wig. No. We're talking like natural <laughs> dreadlock olden days. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Like Kay. invention of the wheel days. Ah, mm -hmm. yeah. Like invention of back, fire. Yeah. Way back. Yeah. The people who would survive best are the people who are today obese. Right. Because they are highly motivated. And dying to seek out food. very early. Yeah. They are the ones who, when, when, when faced with highly palatable, high fat food, they will eat it and they will eat lots of it. They will also not, they don't exercise because like, that's what got you farther in life back in the old days for me like I grew I'm like a weirdo I like I hate animal fat like I hate it mm -hmm. I don't like bacon like anything where I can see like white even like chicken thighs I'm like it's just nothing I wouldn't have done well I also like never really like butter I was that kid who would like if my dad buttered my bread I would like pat it with a yeah I've been on a butter kick lately um but like somebody like me wouldn't have survived back then mm -hmm. like somebody who's not a big eater um, somebody who maybe really likes to exercise. I mean, granted, there's many different factors that come into play now with yeah. exercise, but, and then also the fact that I'm gay. So I wouldn't be, you know, if I was, you know, not mating with a male back then, then my genes would not have <laughs> passed on. Yeah. Like, no, get your bugs away from me. Um, yeah. there's two, there's a couple of theories on the, like the gay thing that's, I find kind of interesting. I think one of them is called the gay uncle theory and it's, about like do, homosexuality may have existed in like in populations and tribes and like nomadic groups as a way to um, ensure that there were more caretakers than children. So it ensures mm -hmm. that there are these adults that are free and available to help with child rearing because they're less likely to pass their own genes along. I read that recently. Interesting. And they think, but it, do they know that like homosexuality is genetic? Like, have they identified genes? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I, for some reason, think that it's still up in the air. Yeah, I don't think they've they've actually located it. Like, I don't think they're gene. they're sure. Like, they're not sure if it's nature or nurture or mm -hmm. a combination. But there's definitely some nature. Oh, for sure, for sure. Because you see it on other species too. Yeah. And um, so the the theory behind the other species is that it might actually exist as a like a population control measure. Yeah. So if you have like, if you have individuals in a, a population or in a species that are not interested in mating for whatever reason then that's an automatic check on the population. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. But now there are a ton of homosexual people mm -hmm. who are reproducing for, you know, with the way that you can. Yeah. Which means like, go gays. Yeah, no. Someone asked me the other day if we, and I think it's just someone who was like, not really super aware of like how the reproduction process with gays works. Yeah. But they asked if, if we could combine our genes Mm. and like i that actually does exist like you can re you can uh 
essentially make recombinant sperm. So like your egg and then my genes get inserted into a sperm and then propagate a Meredith and Alex baby. But that's going like... That would be so expensive. Oh, num- <laughs> yes. Insanely expensive. But also it's like right now there's an ethical line that's like, yeah, that's not really cool, which I like I can respect because, you know, we can't... It's not... We can clone animals, but so far like we haven't cloned a human and we shouldn't. But that's not really cloning. No, but it's genetic. It's legit genetic engineering. Okay, yeah. Like straight up, which is which is not an ethical... Not something that is considered to be an ethical practice so they haven't figured out how to do it in in a scientifically ethical way that makes sense yeah so um good question but no we can't have a meredith and alex baby we just need to find um a, ma- a male who is similar to one of us whoever yeah. is that gonna be yeah which you can definitely do um so anyways uh, do you have anything else on the gays in society and <laughs> then gays in nature? No, we can go back. <laughs> gays in nature. That could be it. That's a good, that should, I'm going to make an Instagram handle. I'm sure there already is one. You know, like people of New York. Yeah. Gays in nature. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that and make t-shirts. Um, so anyways, you, where do we leave off with the pleasure trap? Just like getting through that sticking point I guess you could call it so I think it's it's like one part awareness like kind of understanding like the reason it's hard is because you're fighting biology which is like that's hard right like your our genes are set and our instincts are were set like eons ago and we're now like we got fast-tracked into this environment that's not the environment that we're meant to be in so we're simply responding in the way that our genes want us to respond but like with the bird when you put when you control the environment like for the bird um and take it away from what's natural and put it into something that's not natural like the bird eventually kills itself and not saying like you know that's that's destined to happen for humans it certainly does happen for some people and you see the same um behavior with uh you know with drug use and alcohol and overeating to an excessive degree so for sure it happens um but i think a, a level of awareness is really powerful in understanding why does something happen and then you know, putting tools in place and then creating a whatever kind of su- support system that y- you need um, to get out of this kind of pleasure trap. If it's if it's something that you want to do, and if you're struggling to do it, yeah, yeah, kind of goes back a little bit to that. I think it was last episode or no, the episode before that about M and M's. It's like one way to do that is to not put yourself in a pleasure trap. Mm-hmm. like in a pleasure trap in a more specific sense of the word or phrase get rid of that food that's in your house that's kind of like you know if food is in front of you you're going to eat it type thing yeah but do you remember like in biology learning or like science i guess it was pretty far back learning about darwinism oh of course and like learning about how different animals have adapted to their environments mm-hmm. like insanity yeah like i think my mind was blown like even what are those reptiles that would like change color chameleon chameleon Mm. like they that's how that was that's not how it began for them i know but that's how they ended up that's how they ended up yeah it's interesting like evolution's super cool and you can even look at like domestication of animals Mm -hmm. as like another example of how quickly things can change like there's this um 
like ivy she wouldn't survive in the wild but apparently like so cats are much closer to their their ancestral like relatives than dogs are so like when you look at the gener like generations of domestications dogs are much more domesticated than cats yeah which kind of explains a lot about cats i also shouldn't use that example because they aren't really a lot of the times choosing their mates yeah like bread but hers her breed is actually one that's much more similar to its yeah like it hasn't been overly bred for physical attributes apparently like the way she is is the way she would be in the wild okay i mean like a little bit cuter bad example okay bad example sorry but chameleon was a good example though yeah but then like there's a specific like species of fox that within two generations of domestication develops um so one of the there's a few signs of domestication in like in canines or in any species actually so they develop a like a piebald pattern that's one sign so like a like a merle or like spotted mm, they they're like domesticated dogs canines their their tur- their tails start to mm-hmm. curl um and then like further down the line you see the development of like giant and miniature breeds so even with these foxes within two generations of domestications had curled tails and were spotted which see meredith crazy. can't remember to get jam at the grocery store but she can remember things like this which i find quite interesting i think that's a great like that's i mean a, they are you have a lot of interesting knowledge i know to share. i know a lot you do about you remember, things that <laughs> don't help we, when we were getting our house inspected yeah we were getting our house inspected and meredith knows like i'm, I'm not even I'm not exaggerating here. Meredith knows everything. <laughs> like like practical, impractical. We were getting our house inspected and the house inspector was talking us through all of those things that like run your house. Basically the, like the beating heart of the house is how he described it. So you got the furnace and all the other things that I don't know. Good job. There's like wires you and like pipes. <laughs> <laughs> and Meredith like knew all of it uh-huh. and was asking questions and like, and he looked at her. He's like, wow you know a lot <laughs> which is funny because like your mom jokes about that yeah. all the time whenever i pipe in about like a car or something she's like oh yeah that's right i forgot you were a mechanic <laughs> earlier in your life a yeah. surgeon yeah i don't know i just have a weird spongy memory for things that are not frequently useful but sometimes useful and they make good stories like the fox story is a cool story mm-hmm. and you can google that because it's for real yeah um yeah so i don't know i was gonna i was gonna wrap this up by telling another story and that's if you haven't looked into if you don't know um donald trump's theory on longevity you should look it up because it's hilarious he basically believes that we're every human is born with a finite amount of life force they call it the battery theory and if you do any amount of exercising you deplete that sooner so the more exercise you do, the earlier you're going to die. He actually believes Which that. Which is ridiculous because if you look at who lives longer, it's the people who are eating healthy and exercising. Mm-hmm. Not that eating healthy has anything to do with the battery, but I imagine he doesn't eat healthy. Yeah, no. He doesn't look like he does. He looks very unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyways, um, do you have anything else? No. I think if you guys want to learn more about some of the things that we talked about, we're by no means experts. There are tons of experts in the field. So Doug Lyle, um, uh, Stefan Guillenet. Yeah. Are probably the one. two that I, yeah, the hungry with. brain is a good one to start with. And then you can kind of jump off that boat, but mm-hmm. those two are great. 
Yeah, Stefan's got a really good website and he has all these references for the Hungry Brain and his uh, debate episode on Joe Rogan. And so if you ever like, like his stuff by itself is really good because he's got a PhD in like neurobiology or something like that. But then he references all these other authors and experts in the field. So you can really spend some time on his website if you're into that kind of thing. Sometimes yeah, I do very it for interesting. fun. But um, yeah, thanks for listening to this one. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you I actually think Doug Lyle is a social psychologist. Social? Yeah. Social psychologist. Yeah, that makes that, sense. Yeah. Sorry to correct, correct you so late in the... I mean, it's fine. Yeah. I don't know that anyone would have cared had you not done that. No. But... I know you always like to be right. <laughs> um, I don't like to be right. I just am. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. Why don't you sign off? I'd rather not. Okay. Um, if you would like to hear about any other topics specifically, just message us on any of our platforms. Um, and we'll do that. Unless it's dumb. And then we probably won't do it. But... I'll probably still be like, yeah, you got it. Thumbs up. <laughs> I don't Rude. know. I know. Um, cool. Thanks for listening. And we will uh, talk to you guys soon. <laughs>